Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre, based in St Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. Hello and welcome to another GodPod. This is Graham Tomlin, the host. We have Jane Williams. Thank you. And we have Michael Lloyd. Uh, I'm afraid you do, yes. I'm sorry about that. So if you are a regular listener of GodPod, this is the um, faithful old team back again for yet another one. No guests this time at all. And uh, we no, also... Nobody would come. <laughs> <laughs> it is getting harder to get all three of us together, isn't it? It is. No, it, it is. It is. So make long. the most of it. <laughs> Enjoy it while you can. Yes. And we are surrounded by bits of paper because people keep on sending in uh, questions to um, GodPod, which is wonderful. It's a very good thing. Um, and uh, we have to we do what we do. You might be interested in this. What we do for GodPod is we actually don't prepare at all for this. I'm I know you'll be shocked. <laughs> <laughs> we literally turn up. We get given a whole sheaf of papers, which are emails that have been sent in. And um, we leaf through them and we just pick a couple of topics that we sound, think quite sound interesting that we might have something to say about. And off we go. It's as easy as that. It's amazing exactly. how much we can find something to say about. Yeah, we witter away about <laughs> different things and have been doing for quite a long time now. <laughs> anyway, today we've got uh, a few more questions that we've um, sifted from the pile to uh, address. And um, the first one is a question about uh, the Bible. And the question goes like this. Uh, Were the biblical writers simply dictating what God was saying, and therefore every word, word, verse and chapter being an accurate record of God's will and what he said? Uh, Or was it the biblical writers' interpretation of what God was saying to them, open up the possibility that there may be some human error within the Bible? So it's basically a question about inspiration if we talk about the inspiration of scripture what do we mean by that if we do believe it in some way what does it actually mean what how did god inspire the bible and what do we what do we mean when we say the bible is inspired because i guess you could interpret that in a number of different ways we might say that of any literature you might read a, a novel and think, oh, it's inspired it was amazing is that what we mean when we talk about the inspiration of scripture it's good literature it it it, it, it sort of speaks to us in a powerful way so um uh, what do we think of the inspiration of scripture and in particular I guess the question is about dictation, did God dictate into the minds of the Bible writers so they wrote it down in a kind of automatic way so I think we can probably say no God didn't dictate word by word, that's never been a Christian understanding of scripture um, uh, and uh, one of the ways in which we can tell that is that Christians have never had any problems whatsoever about the thought of translating scripture um, so it is perfectly possible to translate uh, from one language to another um, uh, Christian scriptures because it isn't the exact um, word dictated by God in that in that particular kind of sense. Um, and of course, that isn't the only way in which something can be inspired. I mean, I think I, I would want to focus upon the central communication of God to human beings which is in the person of Jesus and the incarnation is is not 
about the word of God, God coming to us, kind of ready and complete. It is coming in a particular person with particular, uh, particular nationality, particular place in historical time, uh, presumably with a northern Galilean accent, um, and 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 he speaks. Jesus speaks God's word in a way that is um, completely affected by how he's grown up, what he sees around him, uh, the kind of flowers that he sees in the lanes of Galilee. Um, it, it's a very particular thing. It comes embodied. And, and that seems to me to the model of how God works, that he works through people and therefore they contribute to what comes out. They contribute to um, what they write. They're not, they're not just pipelines they are it is embodied in them and then it comes out using their for, for thought forms their art forms their forms of expression um the kind of colloquial way of speaking that their circles um speak it's it's all tied up in in who they are now that's not accidental god has chosen them but it does mean that they contribute to it I suppose a lot of it comes from that verse in 2 Timothy, isn't it? 2 Timothy 3.16 that talks about, you know, all scripture is inspired by God. And the, the Greek word there is theoponoustos. And I suppose it depends on how you, how you interpret that word. And it's a very, very unusual word, so we don't have many places against which we can check it. That's right. And, and sometimes it's been interpreted as, as you know, theoponoustos, theos is God, ponoustos is breath or breathed. Uh, does this mean that scripture is God breathed in the sense that God breathed out scripture? He sort of utters it. It's directly divine utterance without any real human um, kind of agency involved in it at all. That, that is one way of understanding it. But I think for the reasons, Mike, you've been saying, that doesn't seem to be the way God tends to work. He tends to work through human agency, through human personality, through human um, uh, decision as he does in, in, in Christ. Um, therefore, I, I would suggest there's another way of reading that that text or interpreting it. And I suppose this is the way I, I see it. It's the, the scripture is theoponoustos. It's inspired in the sense, more in the sense that the God breathes into the words of those who wrote the text of scripture. So that they become not just inspired in the sense that, you know, Coleridge is inspired or Wordsworth or Shakespeare it's not just you know fancy writing that's highly exalted writing exactly yeah. it's, it's it's more than that there is a there is a divine element in this that um, scripture is is, is 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 human words into which god has breathed his authority his spirit his his self as it were so it becomes divine speech for us it becomes divine communication uh, and because of that extra element, that extra dimension of the, of the, the language, the text of Scripture, uh, we can therefore say, as we do in church, you know, this is the word of the Lord. By that, we don't mean this didn't, this came into being, you know, without any human agency at all. But it's it's human words into which God has breathed His life, His energy, His authority, His own voice, as it were. Um, and that seems to be important because we're back to this question of of, of um, you know, how can we speak adequately of God? Uh, this is a question that John Calvin raised, I think, you know, which is this question of, you know, how, how can human language do justice to God? Because either 
we say we can say nothing because God is so far above us. We can't, you know, human language can't, can't make any sense at all, at all about God because it's such a frail and useless thing. Uh, or we can, or we, on the other hand, we say that human language can describe God, in which case God becomes too small for us. So how do you kind of steer between those two alternatives? And I think Calvin's answer is that the only way we can speak about God is because God has given us a language in which we can speak about God, which is the, the language of Scripture, which is why good theology is always engaged very profoundly with the text of Scripture, because it is, it is the language that we are given uh, to speak about God. And we have to learn Scripture so that we can speak intelligently about God using that language and its concepts and its ideas and so on. I think we can only do that if we have some idea of inspiration, but not in a clunky, direct sense of dictation. And, and, and of course, one of the ways in which we... Um in which we know that we're encounter. I mean, there is an encounter with God in Scripture, isn't there? So that it, it there is a sort of liveliness about the word. So that although they, um, Jesus speaks uh, about the world, the first century world of of Galilee and Jerusalem with viv- with vividness. Nonetheless, it's not a world that's dead over there. Mm. Um, it's a world into which we are somehow invited to enter. Mm. And all, all generations of Christians always have been, so that we need to pay attention to the particularity, but also um, to the encounter that goes on now. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm constantly uh, brought up against things in the Bible that I could have sworn weren't there last time I looked. <laughs> um, do you know that? Do you know what yes, I'm, yes, uh, yeah, Despite the fact that I like to think that I've read it several yeah. times. Yeah. Uh, and there is this sense of a real liveliness about it. Um, of course, you're not the same person as read it last time. No, quite. So you spot yeah. things yes, that you exactly. didn't Different things last spring last out, time. yes. Yeah. And I think the other thing that shows that it's not a, a, about pipeline kind of dictation is that all the different writers have very different styles. They have different uh, kind of verbal styles and, and stylistic styles. And, 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 you know, reading Paul is very different from reading John. Uh, they're hugely different. They have their own characters. And you meet with them as you meet with God, or rather you meet with God as you meet with them. And that's why, it just en passant, I never like it when preachers kind of say well I, you know may they not meet with me may they meet with with you in their prayer before them no you want to meet with both and it's that's what an incarnational faith does uh, we meet with um, god as we meet with paul as we meet with matthew as we meet with isaiah as we, whoever it may be and we may be of course making people feel very insecure because w- one of the really um, important things about scripture is that we know it is given to us and we're not at liberty um, to, to make up our, our own religion, our own faith that isn't based around scripture. And the way we're talking about it may, may make people feel that we don't think that it is the ruler of our, uh, of our Christian life. Which, but, but, uh, but again, I mean, I think that the way we're talking about it suggests that we, it expects us to grow in relation to it. It isn't just a set of rules that you either follow or you don't. It's a community of people that God has, is calling and creating from the beginning of time, drawing people into it. And as we interact with the people that we encounter with Scripture, with the God who calls them, we are growing and changing too. And it is more complicated than just knowing whether you've kept the right rules or not. But then that's what St Paul is talking about, isn't it? It always strikes me that you know, when you read some of the great theologians in the history of the Church, you know, people from the early fathers or the medievals of the reformers or whatever you know the greatest theologians it almost becomes a kind of almost like a tissue of scripture 
it's like when you read scholarly editions of the fathers and, and you know some poor scholar is trying to reference every single reference to the bible that's in it and you almost get more references and footnotes at the bottom than you get actual text because it's almost as if scripture has become so much part of their mind and their heart that they they can't speak without allusion to scripture all the way through and that's actually kind of the way theology does but it's still their own language yes. they're taking the language of scripture and crafting it into uh, into you know their own theological exploration and, and uh, an explanation and i think it's a much richer concept of inspiration because uh, if it was just dictation the person's not involved actually of course it's the, the nature and person of god has so captivated this person's mind and imagination and mm. being uh, that all of that is involved in mm. uh, in god's speaking and communicating through them mm. uh, that's that's a much more personal yeah. and rich concept in my view and of course there, there are bits of scripture that just they just don't sound like dictation I, mean, I was thinking of that bit where again in 2 timothy where um where paul says i mean I, i've sent tychicus to ephesus when you come bring the cloak that i left with carpus at troas also the books and above all the parchments and you can't kind of think why why on earth would god dictate that it just sounds like you know paul is saying you know so i left my coat at, at, at carpus you know and i forgot the books as well and a few letters can you bring them with you when, when you come it's the kind of thing you'd say at the end of an email you know to yeah. to your friend when you've when you just visited them it just sounds like just an ordinary letter that he wrote one day and maybe not even thinking this was going to end up in the bible um but that god takes this text and breathes his life into it and therefore it becomes part of the church's church's book and then the beginning of one Corinthians, where paul says you know i, I baptized I, I hardly baptize anybody only an x and y and then later says oh and it was z as well yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you can't you can't imagine god kind of having us an afterthought <laughs> like that oh, or in those bits where it says you know and it says somewhere <laughs> i couldn't quite look up the reference i find those very reassuring yeah. you know, they are very good i've just been quite recently rereading athanasius's wonderful letter to somebody called marcelinus um, who hadn't been very well and wanted to know if he should be reading the Psalms, if that would be a good thing to do with his convalescence. And Athanasius says, yes, it absolutely would. And then just gives this whole ream of ways in which um, it, it, interacting with the Psalms gives you a way of responding to the world. Um, and I thought, yes, that's exactly what you're, you're, you're talking about, Mike, when somebody's, the Bible has become part of... Um, who they were, that was, or maybe it was Graham, I can't tell you two apart. And even. <laughs> <laughs> it's a worrying thought, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's, it is for me. <laughs> for me too, there you go. <laughs> we have morphed into each other, Mike. Oh dear. Um, anyway, thank you very much for um, uh, your question. That's a really good question about um, the inspiration of scripture. Uh, going on to another one. Um, and this is uh, um, maybe a more personal, sort of somber one coming from someone called Stephen, Stephen Taylor. Um, and uh, he uh, does his daily commute from Haysham to Blackpool and uh, is working through the God Pods and he's, like I said he's faintly dreading the day when he's got through the end of the back catalogue of God Pods because he doesn't have nothing to do, nothing to listen to on his commute so Stephen I hope we'll, we'll keep on, we'll keep up to speed and keep on producing these so, you, so we can um, enliven your your um, your commute. And I do hope you've got the kind of earphones that don't really work, so the whole carriage is listening as well. <laughs> so, that's right, yeah. This is a for you. You may you may have him wrong. He may be that he believes in purgatory and therefore <laughs> wants to listen to as many as he can. <laughs> right. Anyway, the question is is this: like, I, I understand that we're in a broken world, and as such, we have suffering and pain. But I can't make sense of some people suffering or feeling pain more than others. 
and he goes on telling a very um, uh, very um, touching story about his own uh, his own mother um, who uh, an accident very young which has left her, her in a great deal of pain in a wheelchair medication throughout her life and so on and you look at a life like that and you wonder is that God's will is it just bad luck or something else how do we make sense of not just the problem of suffering but the kind of unequal problem of suffering the fact that some people just seem to have it much worse than anybody else how do we make sense of that theologically I think the problem of the unjust distribution of suffering it is in in part a problem because we see it as being distributed we see there being a distributor uh, and if that is the case, if there is a person there distributing suffering, then it's a real, really insuperable problem, in my view, um, because it is utterly unjust. It is utterly unjust that somebody like that lives a life that they do, and and I live the life I do. Uh, but I don't think there is a distributor. <laughs> I don't think God is in the business of distributing suffering. Um on the contrary, I think these things happen not because God wants them to do, but because we've got ourselves, not because they're the will of God, but because we've got, as a cosmos, got ourselves cut off from the will of God. And because we've cut ourselves off uh, from the one who has good purposes for us, things happen that have no purpose. Things happen that are intrinsically uh, counter-purposeful. <laughs> That doesn't mean that God cannot retrospectively give them a meaning that they don't intrinsically have, but it does mean that he's not there distributing them and their happening is not his will. Things will happen that are just unfair. In a world that's cut itself off from the God of purpose, there is such a thing as bad luck. And I think, I mean, it's a very, very natural question to ask, why me? Yes. When a whole catalogue of um, unjust suffering falls on a particular person or family. That is a very natural question, but as you say, it comes out of the sense that uh, somebody, something is intentionally making it happen. Um, so it's as though, you know, there's a big hole in the road, but it's only there when I walk over it, and it wouldn't be there when anybody else... And, of course, that's not true. If it's broken, it's broken, and whoever encounters it um, is damaged by it. Um, and so there, there isn't fairness um, in the way in which that brokenness impacts on people. Yeah. There's a sense in which if it was equally distributed it would have a sort of rationale to it and I think the point about evil is it has no rationale there is no nice neat orderly nature to evil it's, that's its very nature, it's, it's random it's unpredictable it has no order, it has no sense, it has no meaning, it has no purpose and therefore, because of that, that is the identity of evil, or the non-identity of evil, yes. is almost inevitably going to be random and, and uncontrolled and un, un, um, unjust in that basic sense. It's a little bit like, you know, a, a, I often think of it, it's like, it's like a virus gets into a, into a computer. And you know, when, you, you know, when the virus gets in, nothing quite works the way it should but there are some parts of the computer that don't work at all and some bits sort of work and some bits work a little bit better but the whole thing is affected by it 
And so that, I've often found that a, maybe a helpful picture of what the nature of evil, because the virus in some ways is nothing. It's just somebody eating up the computer from within and, and, and some bits go quicker than others and, uh, and so on. So, so there is that element of, of randomness about evil, which is its very, very nature. And then, the, then we need to say again what Mike just importantly said, which is that um, uh, nonetheless, when, brought it, when we bring this into our relationship with God and allow God to bring it into um, a relation to him, then something meaningful can be made of what is meaningless. It doesn't mean that God intended it, no. but it means that in, in God, nothing is wasted, nothing is fruitless. Yes. And it's that retrospective nature that, that stops us from being able to, well, that, that blocks the question, why why did this happen? And replaces it with the question, what what good can come out of this? Uh, and the cross and the resurrection suggests to me that there's nothing out of which God cannot bring good. It doesn't mean that the cross is a good thing or you know that deicide is okay. Um, it just means that, that God is good at bringing wonderful things out of total mess because god is meaning and life yes and yeah. therefore and evil is lack of meaning yeah. and death yes yeah. yes i think the other thing on it is that because i guess obviously the, the the problem of evil and this particular sort of issue the unjust nature of suffering and people often see somebody who goes through unspeakable suffering in their life and think well how can i possibly believe in a god in a in a in a, in a world where that sort of thing happens and um, and I suppose part of my answer to that sometimes is, um, well, okay, you know, you can, if you like, eliminate God and say, right, we delete God out of the system and, and you can't believe in him anymore. But have you then solved the problem of suffering? And of course you haven't. You've still got it. It still exists. You've still got to deal with it. And in fact, what you've done is you've taken away any hope that it could ever be any different. All you're left with is randomness. All you're left with is this unjust this picture of the world which is just full of random suffering that just afflicts people for no reason whatsoever. That's all you've got, which I think is actually pretty intolerable to live with. And the only way you can actually live with this is, is, is alongside your sense of the reality and the depth and the, yes, the, yes, the, you know, the, the, the awfulness of evil, but also with an equally strong, if not stronger, belief in redemption. That, as we've been just saying, that God can take the worst possible thing and do something good out of it that that there is a a judgment there is a, a a a day when evil and good will be separated and evil will be cast away and there will be just goodness left because if you haven't got that belief all you're left with is a kind of despair really or i suppose the, the, the another alternative would be that you, that there is a malign fate that is out to get particular people yeah. and uh, and there are there is a kind of superstitious kind of religiosity that thinks if i propitiate if i do the right thing at the right time i can make this go away yeah. if i if i you know pay pay sacrifices to the right person at the right time i and the people right. i love will yeah. will be okay we can we can make it um happen to somebody else instead uh, as though that were a, a better <laughs> situation but um but but either is is it's still pretty hopeless isn't it and yes. um without the presence of god and i mean that's a way of saying that we don't believe in fate and we don't believe ultimately in chance though there are elements of that within uh, human experience ultimately we believe in providence one who is able to take all those random and in some ways pointless and purposeless events and and create something wonderful out of them 
And it leads on to maybe a last question we can deal with just briefly um, in this God pod, which is uh, one from Charles Schofield in uh, Cumbria, um, who uh, has listened to all the God pods, some of them more than once. Yeah, deepest sympathy. <laughs> yes, exactly. And um, obviously seems to quite enjoy them, so I'm really glad about that, Charles. But his question is, um, as he's now reached his three score years and ten, he's, he thinks increasingly the end times and would like to believe in a new Jerusalem revelation or the last trumpet of 1 Corinthians. The problem is, it's quite difficult to believe that in the face of modern scientific knowledge of how things work. For example, a cosmology which depicts a universe gradually dying from entropy and the total dissolution at death of the human body. So we've been talking about redemption. We've been talking about how suffering can be redeemed and something can be overcome. It's not the last word. But can you imagine that in a world where scientifically we're told that the world is slowly dying and that observably bodies are simply laid in the ground or put in a crematorium and are dissolved? Uh, how can you believe in a redemption, in a in a sort of new heaven and a new earth, a last trumpet or anything beyond the dissolution of all things? C.S. Lewis... I think rather helpfully points out that, that the scientific side of things doesn't actually change the situation particularly. It, we are actually in the same position as first century people. They knew that when people died, they stayed dead. You don't need science to tell you that. And yet they still believed in the resurrection because of what they witnessed. Um, and And I think I think it is incredibly difficult to imagine. Um, in fact, I don't think I can imagine it. Uh, I remember the, the night before I preached at my father's funeral, I sat up all night thinking, who are we kidding? I, I cannot imagine people coming out of their graves, <laughs> being alive again, having a restoration of relationship. Uh, and I actually thought, as I woke up, well, not woke up, but kind of as, as day broke, I kind of thought, but actually, that's to say that God is limited by my imagination. This is not a very good argument, um, and I, I, I just think that, of course, it's unbelievable, uh, unimaginable. But that actually is no argument against it. Um, yeah, I mean, it says, doesn't it, you know, what eye has not seen, what ear has not heard, what yes. God has prepared yes. for those yeah. who love him. And it seems to me that the, the very nature of the thing is that we are talking about a new heaven and a new earth that is almost beyond our imagination. And if we could imagine it, it would not be new. It would be something within the confines of what we are capable of imagining. And therefore... Um, now, I think what we are given in Scripture is a number of images that can help us to think that it's not just about disillusion and entropy. One of the images, of course, is 1 Corinthians 15, which talks about talks about bulbs, you know, that, that, that a seed or a seed or a bulb which, which, which is planted in the ground looks like it's dead, it looks like it's finished, but actually it, it germinates and out of it comes a, a plant that looks nothing like the bulb. Now, if you just saw the bulb, you could never imagine the flower, you could never imagine the tulip or the daffodil from the bulb because they look entirely different. But actually, we know they're kind of continuous with each other. And it's exactly the same sort of way. It's as if we look at our our dying bodies as bulbs that we just cannot imagine anything different. But somehow out of them, God is able to bring something incredibly beautiful and new, just like a daffodil comes from a rather wrinkled, old, ugly bulb. And that seems to be an image that Paul uses to sort of help us to see how 
there are different kinds of bodies. There is different kinds of flesh. Like he says, there's the flesh of animals, there's the flesh of sort of, you know, heavenly bodies and so on. And so, so it seems to me that, you know, what he's giving us is a set of images to help us to begin to imagine what this could look like, uh, even if we find it hard to imagine. And the reason he's doing it at all, of course, is because Jesus rose from the dead. Yes. Um, so because it, his body didn't look any much like exactly. his earthly body, because why they didn't rec recognise it in the garden. So it's not something um, that we say on the basis of science or... Um, you know, general understanding of how nature works. It's mm. it's on the basis of Jesus. Yeah, we don't extrapolate no. out from where we are at the moment no. to a conclusion like sort of economists or social scientists do. That the resurrection is not an extrapolation of life as we know it. It's a breaking in of a completely new form of life, which is still continuous with, but very very different. Yes. Yeah, so Jesus is still Jesus, yeah. and everybody recognises that. But that's not. It's clearly not what anybody expected to happen. Yeah. Um, that is the action of the God who is utterly alive. And, and it's, it's the resurrection, but behind that, again, is is God's love. If you look at the world, no, you wouldn't expect the resurrection. If you look at the love of God, which passionately loves everything that he's made, perhaps a God like that is not going to let it go to waste, is not going to let it, is not going to let the, his relationship with it be broken. Love is stronger than death. Love is stronger than death. Pretty good moment to finish, I reckon. So uh, that is the end of this uh, episode of GodPod. If you've got uh, questions you would like to uh, email into us, the email address is godpod at htb.org. So that's uh, godpod, G-O-D-P-O-D, at htb.org. So please email in your questions. We'd love more and more to come in. Um, we often feel like we've talked about just about everything in theology over the last hundred and whatever it is episodes, but I'm sure there are new questions that will come up. And it won't stop us anyway, even if we go back over the same questions. <laughs> I'm sure we probably have. Anyway, so it's uh, goodbye from me. And from me, Michael. And also from me, Jane. Goodbye. was GodPod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.